Well, it's good to be with you again as we continue this message on the backdrop to Christ's death. When we think about the cross, it is, as I have said before in the first lesson, that it is the backbone, if you will, to our faith. Without the death of Christ, then there is no atonement for sin. Without his penal substitution, without him paying the price for our sins, there is no hope. There is nothing awaiting us except for an eternal destiny of separation from God. And the beauty of this death, and there is a beauty to it. It's the epitome of beauty, actually, because we see in it God glorifying glorifying himself. This is God's chief aim, that he would be glorified. And in glorifying himself, we see the expression of his attributes, all in a perfect spiritual synergy, if you will, accomplishing his goal on the cross through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We've already considered that God is a holy God. He is absolutely perfect. He is distinct. He is set apart. He is marked off in moral excellence. We've already considered how the justice of God had to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ, God cannot simply, because he so loves his own glory, excuse men who are under his wrath, then there is no justice unless a penalty has been paid, unless there is an atonement. And in fact, when we think about God's holiness and God's justice, they work in perfect harmony with one another because they will, once satisfied, remove The wrath of God. And that's the third attribute for us to consider. So it is the holiness of God, the justice of God, and then the wrath of God. We must understand that God's wrath is in perfect harmony with his justice and holiness. The wrath of God is what? It's his calculated response to man's violation of his holy standard. You remember I said earlier that in a court system, one can either be found guilty or not guilty based on the preponderance of the evidence. Or a jury may make a decision um, that is beyond reasonable doubt. They can say, I believe you are guilty or I believe you are not guilty. With God, it is not that way. It is not a preponderance of evidence. It is every evidence, every exacting um, fact. It is not beyond reasonable doubt. There is no doubt whatsoever before God and his standard that all men are deserving of eternal separation from him. And so what must happen? Jesus Christ and this eternal plan of God would come and he would be that lamb of God, unlike the sacrifices of many generations that were never going to satisfy God's wrath. They were only temporary. The Lamb of God would come and he would satisfy that holy standard, that justice. And the wrath of God would be placed on him. What is wrath? Wrath carries the idea of vengeance. In Romans 12 and 19, it tells us what? Leave room for the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. We see in the great, um, one of the most beautiful passages really in all of scripture and the servant song we see in Isaiah 52 13 to 53 this great 
demonstration of God's plan unfolding through the Messiah, the suffering servant, when God's anger and God's wrath would fall upon him. As a matter of fact, the scripture tells us what? It pleased the Lord to crush him and crush him with what? His own wrath. God's wrath is this. It is his righteous indignation towards children of disobedience. Ephesians chapter 2. And we have a a, a bleak picture in verses 1 to 3. That we were all dead in our transgressions and our sins. And we walked according to the course of this world. The prince of the power of the air. And we were all by nature children of wrath. We were sons of disobedience it tells us. But praise God my favorite phrase in the Bible. In verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, made us alive. But we need to understand in that but God statement what had to take place. It wasn't simply God looked and says, well, they are dead in their transgressions and sins. They're walking according to the the prince of the power of the air. They are children of wrath. I'll just excuse it. No, his holy standard was met in Jesus Christ. No, the justice of God was met in Jesus Christ on the cross. No, his wrath had to have an object. And that object was the person of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who was crushed for us. And see, the believer, I mean, really... How can we not be stirred when we think about the death of Jesus Christ? And even though I'm not in front of you right now, there's but one person here filming this. It doesn't matter. In my soul, I have a sense that I am honored and in one sense, perhaps even overwhelmed that he would even pay attention to me, more or less die for me. And I've said this before and anchored and I said it over the years that I've pastored in other places. We must remember that God has no need outside of himself. Some people have convinced themselves that God saw me and he looked and saw my potential for good deeds and, and perhaps some benefit to society. No, you were a rebel, as I said before. You were a child of wrath. The only potential that God saw was the potential to glorify himself because, as I had said before, Paul says he didn't choose the noble or the mighty, the weak. As he chose Israel as a nation, why not Egypt? Why not a great nation? No, to say, look, I will receive the glory for this. When the Egyptians had the people of God captive and when... Israel was set free, not yet even a nation. When they were set free, what happened? You remember when they go into the promised land and the spies go to the promised land and what had happened? The reputation of God had preceded them. Because what was the statement, Rahab? That now the men, their souls are like wax because everyone has heard what your God has done. Now, if you reversed it, And if God had chosen Egypt, right, and then they defeat the Israelites, what's the big deal? That's obvious. They're a mighty nation. But when a people, a group of slaves, is in this great and mighty way freed, this draws attention. And God is saying, I want all attention drawn to me. I deserve it. 
I am the creator of the universe. No one is worthy but me. See, wrath is, in fact, this righteous indignation towards the children of disobedience, as I already said, Ephesians 2. But it's also John 3 and 36, that the wrath of God abides over. It is over every person that does not know the Lord Jesus Christ. But we must get this right. Listen um, to this quote from Reinhard Niebuhr. In his critique, it's his critique of the liberal social gospel in his work, The Kingdom of God in America. And he said this, A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. See, that's liberalism. There is no wrath. No, God is not wrath. He is nothing but love. No, man is not a sinner. He is simply a budding flower that has potential that only needs to be nurtured. No, there is no judgment because judgment would imply that a person is guilty of something and man is not that and God is not wrathful anyway, so there can be no judgment. And then, of course, if that is true, why then a cross? And this is why some people deny penal substitution because they have an incorrect view of God, an incorrect view of man, and an incorrect view of heaven and God's kingdom, God's standard. Therefore, why do I need a cross? It makes no sense whatsoever. And I can understand if I were liberal, I would think the same way. But thanks be to God, I am not. God's wrath is, in fact, an expression of his holy love. You say, hold on, wrath and love? These seems to be absolutely contrary. These are contradictory. No, it's, it's not true at all. If God is not a God of wrath, his love is simply some sporadic sentiment, and the mercy of God would not be necessary. I mean, if we don't have a correct view of God's wrath, then Christ's substitutionary death was no more than a moral example to follow. Let me backtrack a little bit in that statement. See, his love would just be a sporadic sentiment. Well, I seem to, they seem to have potential. Let me save them. I really like them. Let me save them then mercy is not necessary because as we understand mercy biblically, mercy is the sense one cries out for mercy, God withhold what I actually deserve. When one cries out for mercy, a criminal might cry out for mercy. He may say, I please, I fall on the mercy of the court. I'm not saying that I'm not guilty. I'm not saying that I am not a sinner. I'm not saying that it did not violate the standards of the land, but I asked for mercy. If there is no wrath, there's no need for mercy, but there is mercy. And this is why even that passage in Ephesians talks about this, the mercy of God. There are people who believe in what is called an, an exemplar view of salvation. However, we have to reject it because it is no more than work salvation. Men gain favor with God by following the example of Christ. So exemplary living is salvific. 
But we deny that because we know that men are sinners. And as much as they may try to live according to a moral standard, they all fall short of the glory of God. Friends, just as we think of the glory of heaven and what awaits us, we must be reminded of the tragedy of hell. Therefore, I want to emphasize again that God is equally a God of wrath as he is a God of love and holiness and patience and mercy and kindness and every other attribute. His wrath is not a lesser attribute. No attribute stands above the other. See, this is a sober implication um, for us to consider. It is this. I believe that it is correct to say that the degree to which heaven will be joyous, hell will be torment. The scripture is clear that heaven will be a place of what? Eternal pleasure. And think about it. It's intimate worship of the living God. We see that great picture in Revelation 21 and 22. And I await that. I was speaking to a friend, a ministry colleague as well, the other day. And uh, they said that they realized that they have prostate cancer. But the form in which he has and and where they've caught it right now, it should not be a problem. Um, in one sense, normal, if you will. And they said to him, he has maybe another 25 to 30 years, really, before it becomes a problem. And he said uh, to me and even to others that were around, I sure hope that I'm in heaven before then. I want to enjoy a life without all of these struggles that are internal and all the struggles that I see around me. I want to be in the presence of the Lord. And that's thoroughly biblical, actually, at least by way of example it is, in that Paul said what? It is much better that I remain, but I would really prefer to be in heaven. I would say the same for me. I I believe I have, with God's grace, um, some years, some decades in front of me. But if I had a choice, and if the choice is right now, Carl, would you prefer heaven, or would you want to be for another 30 years? I would want to think, as Paul thought, well, let me give more 30 years more of my life here, because I do have an eternity in heaven. But at the same time, oh my, to be without sin. And to not read some of the headlines that I read today. To not see the picture of a three-year-old who's been shot in Chicago. To not hear of a woman who's been now kidnapped and put into sex slavery. To not go. And I remember the time when I was actually traveling recently and I was in Chicago I'm sorry, I was in, um, this was in Seattle, and I went to the restroom, and I was actually in the restroom, and I saw this poster, and it talked about how we should be aware um, of human trafficking, and, if you, and it gave you things to look for that you need to think about. And I had to pause for a moment, and I thought about that. Men are evil. They are. And in my mind, I thought for a moment, young girls that are captured in the streets and they're taken away somewhere and they're held hostage. And I thought, men are evil. (laughs) And the liberal wants to tell us that there is no wrath necessary. Oh, my goodness. There is no judgment. Men are really not sinners. 
that there's no need for a cross? What world are they living in? Well, well, spiritually, I know it's another kingdom. It's another mindset. See, heaven, though, is going to be a place like no man has ever known or imagined. I mean, imagine that. We're going to be singing praises to the Lamb. We're going to be free of sin. No more struggles. No more attitudes. No more impatience. No more showing a lack of mercy. No more horrible thoughts that you have to denounce. We will enjoy a glorified body that is perfect in all ways. We will behold the Lamb and behold Him in all of His splendor and glory and honor. And for a moment, I just just have to go there. As I thought about even that statement itself in Revelation. uh, Revelation chapter 4. And we see these living creatures in 4 verse 8. And they're crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the four living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever. And the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and they will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of you, your will, they existed and were created. And notice this picture. He says, The book is given to him, and a strong angel was proclaiming who is worthy to open the book and break its seal. And he says in verse 4, I began to weep greatly because there was no one found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. For behold, the lion that is the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And when I saw between the throne but the four living creatures and the elders, notice what it says, verse 6, a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Verse 8, the 24 elders fell down before the lamb and each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals and you were slain. This is what we're talking about right now. The death of Christ. There was a cross because there was wrath. Because there is holiness, because there is justice, because men are sinners. And purchase for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. This will be our experience in heaven. We will see his splendor and glory and honor. However, in contrast to that, hell is what? Hell. Instead of singing, there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Instead of being free of sin, there is a consistent reminder of sin. And instead of enjoying a glorified body, it will be cursed. It will be an eternal body. It will exist forever. 
But it will never die, although men would hope for it. Instead of beholding the lamb in his splendor, people will forever behold the wrath of the Father for rejecting the sacrifice, the cross, the death of Jesus Christ that met God's holy standard and met the justice of God and provides a way of escape from the wrath of God. But for a moment, let's let God speak for himself on this matter of hell and of wrath. Zechariah 7 and 12 says, And they made their hearts like flint, so that they could not hear the law and the word which the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great wrath came upon from the Lord of hosts. And this is just an account to say the people of God are, are guilty because notice what it says. It is so interesting and it's so like society today. So they made their hearts like flint. It's this sense of what saying they were determined. Because actually one translation of Jesus Christ when it says, and he set his heart like flint towards Jerusalem because he was going to die and they do just the opposite. They determine that they would not hear the law and not hear God's words. And this is what's true of society today. We will not hear the word of God. We will question whether or not it's inspired. We will question whether or not it's inerrant. We will question not it has, whether or not it has authority. We will question whether or not it is in fact sufficient. We will not hear it. Or perhaps some will say, maybe not as not that radical, they will say we will hear it along with other laws and other prophets and other ways, because surely your way is not the way. Well, friend, the scripture is clear. I'm the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except by me. Consider Matthew 22. Verse 2 and verse 7 and verse 13, it says this, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. But the king was enraged, or he was full of wrath, and sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then the king said to his servants, Bind them hand and foot and cast them into the outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The king God, the Son, Jesus Christ, when men do not adhere. Luke sixteen twenty three. the rich man in Lazarus. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away in Lazarus in his bosom because he had rejected the opportunity to believe. We already referenced John 3.36, but let me read it again. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. And when you believe in the Son, it means that I believe in his death and his burial and his physical resurrection. But he who does not obey the Son does, shall not have life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So instead of the pleasure of God abiding on a person, then the wrath of God abides on them. Romans 1.18 Chapter 2, verse 5, verse 18. It says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. 
But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Ephesians 5, 6, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Hebrews 3, 11, and I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Revelation 14 and 10, in verse 11, it says, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength and the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. I mean, think about that. In the presence of the Lamb. So this is a part of the torment is this. That you're seeing in the presence of the Lamb, not as a Savior, but as your condemner. And surely hell is this reality that a person will remember, I could have been saved, but I am not. I am in torment now. What a fool I am. What a fool I am. Imagine that for an eternity. Being reminded that you could have been relieved, but now you're in everlasting pain. I mean, day and night. I mean, recently I've had this, some of you know about it, this problem with the sciatic nerve. And if you've ever experienced it, it's really painful. I have a high tolerance for pain. That's been part of my problem growing up. Things have been in me torn and I didn't, I just thought I'd ice it and it was okay. I had a torn um, meniscus once, and I just kept icing it. Oh, no big deal. Hey, you have a torn meniscus. No wonder. I had to have surgery. But this sciatica, oh, it, it came with a vengeance. I was tossing and turning. I was in bed. I couldn't sleep well. I was trying to find this right position to get some relief, and I could not get it. A minuscule illustration in comparison to someone Never being able to find relief. Never. Not for a split second. See, we cannot think lightly about this doctrine, this reality. I have relatives who are children of wrath. You have children or friends or loved ones that face the eternal wrath of God. When one stops and thinks about the dark future we could have had, We should all shout with joy. That is not my future. I have a bright future. A future of worship. A future of joy. I mean, when we consider the bleak destiny of those who do not know Christ, those who still follow the course of this world, the leader of this world, the lustful passions of the flesh, we should be motivated to witness by life and words the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. God provided a way for sinners to be reconciled to himself because of his love for his creation, his love for his glory. Because of God's love for himself, he has provided reconciliation for sinners. But he must not, of course, violate his justice. Yet, he does fully and truly justify the sinner so that there can be genuine fellowship. And how does he do it? Because now Christ has died for us. 
and his righteousness is imputed to us. This is precisely where the atoning work of Christ comes into the picture. It was through the atonement that God displayed his holiness by doing what? Providing for spiritually dead sinners. Then the Holy Spirit calls us and regenerates, making us capable of putting on the new self, which is in the likeness of God. And it was created, according to Ephesians 4.24, it was created in righteousness and the holiness of truth. The atonement demonstrated that God is just. He did judge sin. And also the justifier of those who trust in Christ as their substitute for their sins. You know, the Bible makes it clear that those who have been justified by the atonement of Christ, the death of Christ, the cross of Christ, escape the wrath of God. Romans 5, 9, much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Amen and amen. The love of God is most vividly Revealed in the atonement of Christ. But God demonstrates his love towards us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5 and 8. Just as in the Old Testament, a sinner brought a substitutionary animal sacrifice to atone for their personal sins. And the New Testament declares that Jesus Christ is that substitutionary sacrifice for every person that trusts in him. 1 Peter 3 and 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. It's Second Corinthians 5 and 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Just that verse itself, I mean, should cause us to pause. And I've wrestled with that in the past. I mean, just think about it. He made him who knew no sin to be sin On our behalf. Therefore. And when we think about the death of Christ. His holy standard. His just standard. His wrath. Are all satisfied. Because. They glorify God. I'm thankful that God. Did not choose me based on potential. Oh my. Where would I be? You should be thankful that he did not choose you based on your potential because you only had a potential for rebellion, for sin, for selfishness. You only had a potential to glorify yourself, not glorify God, but it's now just the opposite. You can live a life that glorifies God. Christ paid the full penalty for your sin. Now you escape eternal hell and the second death. And now, say, what do we do with this? Surely you have to tell someone else. Tell someone else that old, old story of Jesus Christ and his death. That in fact, it's nothing but the blood. That in fact, it was at the cross where my Savior died. That darkness goes from light to light. Appreciate it. Amen. Father, we thank you for your words you give us. I pray that they'll bless the hearts of everyone that hears. In Christ's name, amen.